And let's give attention to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Hebrews 12:14 through 17. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. Chapter 13, verses 4 through 6. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept, kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The word of the Lord. You know, it's going to take a long time for the people of the South to recover from the tornadoes that came April 27th. Take a look at this map and it'll show you why those tornadoes were so awfully destructive. What we know now, looking back on those tornadoes, is that there were at least 178 major confirmed tornadoes that tore through six different southern states. The one that barreled through Tuscaloosa and Birmingham, Alabama, was one and a half miles wide and lasted about 80 miles long. More than half of Alabama's 67 counties have been declared disaster areas. In Jefferson County alone, nearly 5,000 homes were destroyed or significantly damaged. The cost of recovery in that state will exceed $5 billion. And, of course, much worse than that is the fact that at least 337 people died and many more were injured. Some people are still missing. An awful, awful time from which people are going to be recovering for a long while. It's sad, but it's true that lives and families and even cities that took decades to build can be damaged forever by events that last mere minutes. And that's one of the lessons that the author of Hebrews wants us to get out of this text this morning. Over in chapter 12, verses 16 and 17, the author talks about Esau. Do you remember Esau? The story of Esau is back in the Old Testament. You'd have to look in Genesis 25 through 27 to learn about Esau. But let me just tell you the gist of what we're told back in the Bible. The firstborn son of Isaac and Rebekah was Esau. He had a twin brother named Jacob. Esau was a jock. He was a man's man. He was a hunter and he was his dad's favorite. Jacob, on the other hand, was a mama's boy. He was a contemplative. He was a quiet man. And that's fine. But he was also an opportunist. He was a deceiver. And he had been that way since the very moment of his birth. Well, one day when the boys were teenagers, Esau came in from the countryside and he was famished. 
Apparently he had been out hunting or something like that. And Jacob was inside in the kitchen cooking a pot of stew. When Esau smelled that stew, he said to Jacob, his brother, he said, Give me some of that stew. I am starving to death. And Jacob sensed an opportunity. So he said to his brother Esau, he said, Okay, I'll give you some of this stew, but first got to sell me your birthright. And then I'll let you have some. Sell me your birthright. Jacob was talking about Esau's right to the blessing of their father Isaac and the double inheritance because he was Isaac's firstborn son. And in that brief moment, what you've got to see is that a tornado was heading straight for Esau. And he made a terrible decision as he contemplated that tornado of temptation. He said to Jacob, Okay, look, I'm about to starve to death. What good is this birthright to me? And Esau sold his birthright right then and there to his brother Jacob for a pot of stew. And that afternoon, the trajectory of Esau's life changed forever. Later on, when Esau wanted his father's blessing, Isaac couldn't give it to him. It was too late. It says in verse 17 of chapter 12 that Esau sought the blessing with tears, but he lived the rest of his life without it. You know, I'm thinking about that day, that little brief transaction. It seemed so harmless to Esau at the time. I'm hungry, he must have thought. Jacob's got the food. We can work out this little deal, but it had devastating, irreparable consequences. Someone has said about Esau, the cravings of the moment outweighed the premier gifts of a lifetime. Verse 16 of chapter 12 calls Esau godless. Godless. For a single meal, it says, he sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. You know, Esau was a guy just like me, just like you. There's no big difference between us. The same kinds of temptations come your way. They come my way. So what can you do to avoid making the kind of mistake that Esau made that afternoon? How can you prepare yourself for the tornadoes of temptation that are inevitably going to come your way so that you're not swept away and destroyed by them? Answer, by making it your goal every hour, every moment, To be holy. To be holy. Verse 14 of chapter 12 says to make every effort. That word means to strive. To put forth intense effort with intentional purpose. To press forward and to pursue holiness. Because it says without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So this morning, let's talk about holiness. It's appropriate that on Mother's Day, we address holiness as it particularly hits us in our home life. But we'll try to make some application in other ways as well. As Lane prayed a moment ago, here at UPC, we have a vision for something. We have a vision for promoting and building strong, healthy, kingdom-advancing families. And so the reason that I want to look at this passage through the lens of the family is to help us make some choices today. 
Whether you're married or single, whether you're a parent or not, whether you're a child, it doesn't matter. We together corporately must make a choice this morning that we will pursue every hour, every moment, holiness. So let's begin with the definition. What is holiness? What does it mean to be holy? I suspect that if we were to go out and do a survey of the people who live in East Orlando, most people would probably say that holiness is basically the same thing as morality. You know, a holy person is someone, they might say, who obeys the speed limit, who is kind, who is considerate, stays out of trouble, goes to church a lot, loves people in general and so on. A holy person, I think most folks would say, is sort of like Billy Graham. Sort of like Mother Teresa. You know, but those two people generally get brought into the discussion. The problem is there are a lot of moral people in the world who, by the biblical definition of the term, are not holy. Holiness does not equal morality. In the Bible, the word holy literally means set apart. Set apart for a special use. For example, consider the Sabbath day. It says back in the Old Testament to remember the Sabbath day. That's the fourth commandment. By what? By keeping it holy. And what God is telling us there is to set the Sabbath day aside as a special day, as, a, as an uncommon day, distinct from the rest of the days of the week. It's set apart. It's sacred. It's holy. Throughout the Bible, we're told that God's name is holy. And that, of course, means that it's special. It's not to be treated as common. It's to be honored and to be revered. The nation of Israel was called in the Old Testament a holy nation. That means it was favored by God. It was set apart from all the other nations in the, in the eyes of God as special. And now you and I, as God's people, are considered a holy nation for the same reason. Another way you can look at holy is to simply look at as this word, holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy dedicated to God. Exclusively committed or dedicated to the Lord. So in a word, let's call holiness being different. Different from the world. Not weird. You know, I know a lot of weird people. That doesn't qualify as holy. Not weird, not strange, not odd or eccentric or arrogant, but different, different from the rest of the world with different values, values guided by God and his word, wholly committed to him. Holiness, in other words, means putting God first in your life, doing what he says to do, going where he says to go, regardless how you feel about it, regardless what other people in the world are doing about it. You're to be holy. Why? Because God is holy. So I want to bring to you from this passage four things about holiness. Holiness is relational, sexual, financial, and supernatural. All right, so that's our plan. Let's dive into the first thing we learn about holiness here. It is relational. Verse 14 of chapter 12. Notice with me again the very first verse of the first passage that Deanne read. I want you to notice something important. The author does not say make every effort to be holy. 
Instead, he says, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. See, the word of God doesn't look at holiness as a private affair, as something you do in isolation from other people. No, holiness is relational. It affects how you live with your spouse, your children, your parents and siblings, your fellow church members, your co-workers, the people you go to school with, the next door neighbor, the people in your life group and in your Bible study. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. It's tied in with living in peace with other people. You can't be a hermit and ever be holy. The second thing I want you to notice about that is that sin is not a private affair either. Verse 15 says, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. I said that you can't be holy in isolation with others. Well, you can't sin in isolation from others either. Sin impacts not just you, but your family, your loved ones, your church, and your community. It can even affect the generations that follow you. Have you ever thought about that? After all, isn't that what we learn about Esau? His sin affected everybody that came after him. The word in verse 15 is defiles. Sin defiles others. That means that it contaminates. It spreads just like those tornadoes in Alabama. When you choose to be unholy, you, as it says, cause trouble. Think of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve's sin didn't just affect their relationship with God vertically. It affected their relationship with each other. And it caused catastrophic damage to the whole human race. And, you know, this is what we so easily forget when we're tempted. Right? I mean, in the moment of temptation, isn't it so easy for you and me to suddenly start thinking like this? Okay, I'm just going to sin. And I know it might hurt me for a little bit. But then I will confess my sin to God. He will forgive me and life will resume as, as normal. Is that what Esau experienced? No. No, when he sold his birthright for that bowl of soup, it affected not only him and his future, but his whole family forever. The descendants of Esau, you know what happened to them? They settled outside the promised land and they became the Edomites, people who were settled enemies of the Israelites for centuries. So it affected his posterity. So what is this bitter root anyway that is mentioned there in verse 15? Well, here's that picture I promised the kids. This is what I showed the children here on the steps. You can see a little bit more clearly now from where you're seated. It's ugly, isn't it? Where did it come from? How did it get there? I didn't plant it there. looks like some kind of prehistoric animal to me. Well, where did it come from? Some little seed was blown by the wind, imperceptibly, unknown to anyone, landed in my backyard, created a root system, and then began to grow and bear ugly, ugly fruit. That, my friends, is what sin is like. 
Sin in your life, sin in my life, it might begin silently, it might begin secretly, with no fanfare, behind closed doors, but eventually it causes trouble. Trouble to you, trouble to others, trouble to your family. It weakens your character, it clouds your vision, it creates a feeling of shame. We weren't created by God and redeemed by Him to feel shame. It gives unbelievers an excuse to scoff at Christianity. And if indulged often enough, it becomes part of our lifestyle, a habit that gets harder and harder to break. Do you get that? Do you get it? Do you follow? So this means some very practical things when you're at work, for example. When you're at work and some cute woman or some handsome guy glances your way, do you stop right there to consider the impact your, your response is going to have upon her or upon him, upon your family, upon your coworkers watching, and upon your marriage? When you and your boyfriend are alone in your apartment and you think to yourself, okay, I've waited for this moment long enough, does it cross your mind that premarital sex will affect every relationship from that point forward in your life? Do you stop and think that one day you're going to have to explain to your daughter why it was okay for you but not okay for her? When you're out shopping and you see those fancy electronic gadgets or the beautiful set of new furniture, do you pause to stop and consider the damage that you're doing to your family if you get in bondage to debt? Does it occur to you that by opening yet another revolving credit account, you are robbing your church, robbing God, because you're not going to be able to give as generously as you would otherwise? And let's talk about sins of omission as well. It works the same way. You're in a circle of friends and someone is slandered right there in front of your ears. You don't say anything. You don't speak up. You don't say, wait, guys, this is not appropriate for us. What does that do for your own conscience? Make it more easy the next time to spread slander yourself. See, your sin not only impacts you, but it contaminates others in such a way that it may mark your life and theirs forever. Now, the good news is the flip side is true also. Holiness, the choice to be holy in those moments, benefits you, makes you stronger, pulls you tighter to the Lord, and rubs off on your family. Rubs off on your co-workers, on your neighbors, on those with whom you go to school. Holiness spreads too. So holiness is relational. Second thing we learn from this passage. Not only is it relational, but it's sexual. The subject of sex is addressed very clearly in these two passages. And you might have wondered, Mike, how come you skipped over a bunch of verses and you chose... That little paragraph from Hebrews 12 and that little paragraph from Hebrews 13. Well, I did it deliberately because they are linked together by a common Greek word, a word you and I know, pornos. Look at 
verse 16 of chapter 12, it says, See that no one is pornos, sexually immoral. Chapter 13, verse 4, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. The Greek word for immorality in both those verses is pornos from which, of course, we get the word pornography. But in the Greek world, world of the day, pornos uh, included a lot more than just pictures. Pornos included any sexual activity between a man and a woman who were not married. So there's a wide variety of things. You know, we can talk in support of a holy kiss. Nothing wrong with that. The Bible advertises, promotes holy kisses. Hand-holding, nothing wrong there. But you step too many steps beyond those biblically permitted practices and then you're already into pornos. The Bible says all forms of pornos are off-limits for people who say they're followers of Jesus. All forms of pornos. Not because sex is a bad thing. That's not why God prohibits it. Not because sex is a bad thing. It's not. It's a great thing. But sex is kind of like the Mississippi River. Once it breaks through the levees, it's destructive. George Guthrie said something very, very beautiful. He said, our sexuality rumbles like thunder in our bones, a power both beautifully dynamic and horrifically damaging in its relational potential. In the Roman Empire of the day, I think it's important to get the context of this. In the time in which this paragraph, these paragraphs were written, marriage was being attacked from two different directions. You had on the one hand the ascetics who said, don't get married, it's bad for the soul. Marriage is matter and all matter is bad. Only spirit is good, said the ascetics. But then on the other hand, there was attack coming from the hedonists. And the hedonists of the day said, sure, if you want to get married, go ahead, but don't confine intimacy to the marriage bed. My goodness, that's so prudish. Take a mistress now and then if you want. Have one of your slaves if you want. Chastity is so first century B.C., they would have said. Sex with slaves was not considered adultery. Prostitution was legal and encouraged. So... Pornos was just as rampant then as it is now. Maybe it took some different forms. But it's in that context that the author says in verse 4 of chapter 13, marriage should be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept pure. He promoted marriage as sacred and as beautiful. He said, yes, of course, enter into marriage. But he also said, within the confines of marriage is where your physical intimacy ought to be and should be expressed. To honor marriage, what does that mean? It means to respect it, hold it up as precious and as valuable and as sacred. Susie, my wife and I were uh, at dinner Thursday night with her uncle and aunt, and they told us they'd been married 67 years. And we just sort of, our jaws dropped. That is so honorable that is so valuable to be able to say, we've stuck it out 67 years. We've honored our marriage vows. 
As you know, we're living at a time when neither marriage nor the marriage bed are honored very well at all by our culture. There are the obvious ways marriage is dishonored, divorce, pornography, same-sex marriage, and things like that. But I'm thinking also of the less obvious ways that marriage today is dishonored in our culture. For example, TV shows and movies. Have you noticed that it's usually the single people that are pictured as the happiest? And married people are often portrayed as living boring, conflicted lives. I'm thinking here of the pressure that is on husbands and wives today to become so busy that they're constantly going in separate directions. I'm thinking here of the pressure in our culture to be so child-centered that married people aren't spending near enough time alone together nourishing their relationship. I'm thinking of the economic pressures that are coming in on the family today that require both spouses to work outside the home and wear themselves out so they have nothing left for each other. I mean, folks, we've got, as the church of Jesus Christ today, to stand fast against those kinds of forces and pressures that are absolutely contrary to Hebrews 13.4. In this place, marriage will be honored and the marriage bed kept pure. It's very hard nowadays to obey Hebrews 13.4. But if we want to be holy, as God calls us to be, we must honor marriage and the marriage bed. Holiness is relational, it's sexual, and in the third place, it's financial. Notice that the author addresses the subject of money very clearly in Hebrews 13.5. He says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Now, you can breathe a little sigh of relief here. I'm not going to say very much about this because I just preached for five straight weeks on the subject of money. And back on March 13th, I even preached a sermon directly on the theme of contentment. So if you want to get into that verse a little bit more, listen to my sermon for March 13th and you'll hear about it. I think that's about all I need to say. The verse speaks for itself. But it is worth pointing out just how these three areas of life interact with each other. They're so interrelated. That is, how we treat other people, what we do with our bodies, and what we do with our money. I mean, really, when you think about it, isn't that really what makes the world go round? It isn't every day of our lives basically spent in and amongst those three issues, and they all have to do with living holy lives. In other words, friends, Jesus must be Lord of those three areas if you're going to be one of his followers. Let's ask ourselves some deep questions. For example, is Jesus Lord of your relationships this morning? That is, do you try to the best of your ability to resolve conflict when it occurs with other people? Or are you harboring bitterness and and a spirit of unforgiveness when somebody offends you, holding them hostage to your need for justice and revenge? And is Jesus Lord of your sexuality? Or are you more guided by the, the cultural standards of the day? And is Jesus Lord of your budget? Do you have a budget? Are you giving generously to the church? Are you happy with what you have already? Or does a desire and a need to always have more or newer stuff 
kind of characterize your life? See, those are questions that you and I must ask ourselves often if we want to grow in holiness. Don't claim to be a Christian if you don't want to be like Christ in those areas because that's what he's calling us to be. Without holiness, it says in verse 14 of chapter 12, no one will see the Lord. Uh Uh-oh, that's a problem. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, you know what some people do to get around that verse? They water it down a little bit. They say, well, surely that doesn't mean that you must be perfectly holy because then nobody would ever see the Lord. So it must mean that you've got to be more holy than unholy. That God sort of puts your good deeds on a scale and if they outweigh the bad, if you're mostly good most of the time, then you'll see the Lord. Is that what it means? Is that a, a right way to deal with Hebrews 12:14? No, it's not. That's not what the writer says. Jesus commented on it when he said, you must be perfect, even as your heavenly father is perfect. He spoke in one of the Beatitudes and he said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. See, there's not a soul in this room this morning who in and of him or herself is perfect, is pure in heart. So what are we going to do with Hebrews 12, 14? How are you going to see the Lord? Answer, holiness is supernatural. Holiness is supernatural. What I mean is that it's something that God gives you through faith in Jesus Christ. And here you've got to be someone who doesn't just pull verses out of the air, out of context, forgetting the rest of the book. Because everything that has gone before has taught us that if you are in Christ, you are already holy. Let me remind you of a couple of verses. For example, Hebrews 10.10 said, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And Hebrews 10.14 said, By one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. In a couple of weeks, we're going to look at this verse from Hebrews 13. Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. See, this is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus makes you holy in the eyes of the Father. Jesus has done for you what you could not and will not ever be able to do for yourself. He lived the life that you didn't live. He died the death that you deserve to die. And if you will confess your sins and turn from yourself and trust in Jesus Christ with all your heart, he'll give you his holiness as a gift. The Bible says that on the cross, what happened is that Jesus traded places with sinners. He gave away his birthright. Listen to that. He gave away his birthright, not for a bowl of stew, but to win your salvation. He took your sin upon himself and he gave you his righteousness. So this morning, if you are in Christ, here's what this means. When God looks down from heaven and sees you, he doesn't see an unholy uh, sinner. He sees a gorgeous saint 
Someone who is clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Someone who is positionally holy already. And on top of that, he has filled you with his Holy Spirit in order to help you to overcome all those unholy habits and behaviors that used to nail you to the wall and to help you get better and better. See, he made you holy that you might become more and more holy. It's when you see that truth of the gospel, when you see the riches of God's grace, the fact that Jesus has done for you these wonderful things, that is what will empower you to obey Hebrews 12, 14, to make every effort to be at peace with all people and to be holy. And you, my friend, if you are in Christ, will in fact see the Lord. Not because you're good but because you're his. Some of us used to sing a song that went something like this. I'm not going to sing it. I'll just say it. Holiness. Holiness is what I long for. Holiness is what I need. Holiness is what you want for me. So take my heart and mold it. Take my mind and transform it. Take my will and conform it to yours. To yours. To yours. May it be so. May it be so of you, of your family, and of our church. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you're holy. We worship you as a holy God, perfectly pure, not a taint of sin anywhere in your character. And we beg of you that you will make us a holy people that you will take these truths of the demands of your holy law and create in us a desire to love holiness more than our sin, to love Jesus more than our sin. Lord, remind us of the disastrous consequences that sometimes come when we choose the way of sin instead of the way of obedience. Help us, Lord, to avoid the mistake of Esau and to long and hunger to be like Jesus who obeyed even in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, in our dealings with one another, in our experience with sexuality, in our treatment of money, will you help us, Lord, to choose holiness? Will you help us live in peace with all people and to be godly in an ungodly day and in an ungodly culture? Father, help the men in this room to be one woman kinds of men. Help the wives in this room to be one man kinds of wives. Help the moms and dads to model holiness to their children. Lord, help our children to see us making holy choices, doing holy things. Lord, help the kids and students in this room when they go out into the midst of an unholy culture, to be willing to be different, different, not strange, not odd, not eccentric, but different, attractively different. Knowing that, Lord, as you've promised in this passage of chapter 13, you will never leave us nor forsake us. You are our helper. Lord, be our helper, we pray, in the fight for holiness. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.